Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia, and is streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are also available via iTunes. So I'm Kate Gracie and this is Freedom of Species. Today I've got a couple of presentations to share with you from Paul Marnie and Mark Donadu, who are two very busy and highly respected members of Australia's vegan activist community. Paul and Mark each gave a really well-received talk at last month's annual Sustainable Living Festival here in the CBD of Melbourne. This is an excellent little festival, by the way. It hasn't been going for a very long time, but it's evolving into a really good forum and expo of ideas on issues of sustainability. It's always got a fantastic program of speakers. Anyway, Paul Marnie is a climate activist and a blogger, as well as an animal activist and a co-founder of Melbourne Pig Save. And Mark Donadu is the president of Vegetarian Victoria. So just as a super abbreviated overview, Paul's presentation is about the overwhelming connection between animal agriculture and climate change, while Mark goes on to talk about how animal agriculture's impact has been overlooked and how it impacts on human health and how it contributes to poverty. So let's go. Hello and welcome to today's presentation. I begin by acknowledging the land of the Wurundjeri people, of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the pivotal role that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people continue to play within the Australian community. My name is Paul Marnie and I'm talking today about livestock and the climate crisis. I'll be followed by Mark Donadu of Vegetarian Victoria who will talk about beyond cowspiracy. I'm talking about livestock's impact on the climate and I would like to stress that I believe absolutely that we need to move away from fossil fuels as well as moving away from animal agriculture. Both are essential measures if we're to overcome the climate crisis, but this talk focuses on animal agriculture. I'll be covering a number of things, and the first thing is to mention the key reasons why livestock has such an influence on climate change. The first is that animals are an inherently inefficient source of nutrition. We are feeding plant-based nutrition to animals who require that nutrition for their own growth and bodily functions and we're losing huge amounts of the nutrients along the way. Added to that is the scale of the industry. 
and the greenhouse gases emitted directly from livestock and indirectly through production processes. And fourthly, land clearing and degradation. And all these things are interrelated. For example, the more inefficient a product is, the more resources that are required to produce it. And those resources include land, leading to more land clearing than, than what would otherwise be required. I'll cover four particular issues, two of those are, are two that you just saw on the screen. One is greenhouse gases arising from livestock production, also land clearing and degradation, and two other issues which are not always discussed in relation to livestock's impacts. One is related to feed crop production, that is soy, corn and other crops that are grown to feed animals, and this is re very relevant to products that are not always spoken about in terms of climate change. You'll often hear about beef and lamb, that is meat from ruminant animals, but this issue affects dairy products, it affects eggs, fish, and chicken. The fourth one is fishing's impact. And it's not hard to understand that industrial and non-industrial fishing has a massive impact on the oceans. What I'll talk about is the impact on climate change arising from the damage that is being done to the oceans. But before all of that, a brief word about the issue of emissions intensity. And what am I talking about when I mention emissions intensity? It is the number of kilograms of greenhouse gas produced per kilogram of product or per kilogram of protein or any other nutrient because these things are measured in kilograms, measured by weight. So we can compare different products. We can compare different products and their emissions intensity to get some idea of how livestock performs in that regard. And what you see here are the emissions intensity figures for a number of plant-based food products, ranging from potatoes at 0.4 all the way through to pulses at 3.3. And pulses are legumes, they're a form of legume. They include dried beans, dried peas, chickpeas and lentils, all things hopefully you're very familiar with. So they come in at 3.3. What I'd like to do initially is compare those food products to two commodities that you're familiar with as well, which are non-food products. They are steel and aluminium, which both require enormous amounts of energy to produce. So those food products come in well below aluminium and reasonably close to steel. Aluminium is at 15.6 kilograms of greenhouse gas per kilogram of end product. At times, aluminium has consumed, or aluminium smelting has consumed 16% of Australia's electricity generation for way less than 1% of gross domestic product and less than 0.1% of jobs. So it is hugely emissions intensive and energy intensive. What I want to do now is compare some animal-based food products emissions intensity to the products that you see on the screen right now. But in order to do that, I need to change the scale of the chart. 
So what we've just done is moved those plant-based products and steel and aluminium to a new chart with a new y-axis, a new scale. And we've included chicken in there at a little over five kilograms of greenhouse gas per kilogram of product. The next two products you'll see are grain-fed beef and grass-fed beef. In fact, the grain-fed is mixed-fed, I call it, because no animals live entirely on grain. Cows have not evolved to live on grain. This is something that's forced on them by humans for the last two or three months of their life to fatten them up before slaughter. But a lot of cows are still fed exclusively on grass. Let's see how those products compare to what you see on the screen. Grass-fed beef comes in at 209 kilograms of greenhouse gas per kilogram of product. This is based on a 20-year time horizon for measuring the impact of methane and nitrous oxide. And that's important, an important issue which I'll talk about shortly. These figures have been adjusted or adapted from figures from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. And these are global average figures. They vary by region. Some countries are much better. Australia does come in better than these figures. Some countries are much worse. I should say also we will have question time at the end of the presentation, after Mark's presentation, so I have to take any questions at that time. So let's look at the issue of greenhouse gases, and in particular the issue of methane. Methane contains carbon. It contains one carbon atom for four hydrogen atoms. And a key concept in relation to methane and other greenhouse gases is, is global warming potential. That is the, the idea that we can convert different greenhouse gases to a common denomination, if you like, in order to assess their impact on global warming. It's a bit like a currency exchange to come up with a common denomination. And over a 100-year time frame, which is the standard form of reporting for methane and other gases, they use they, they, the, the methane, or the impact of methane, is it's 35, 34 times more potent than carbon dioxide. You might have heard figures of 21 or 25 at different times. They're old figures. 25 comes from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2007. They increased it in 2013 to 34, allowing for carbon, well, climate carbon feedbacks, that is mechanisms in the climate system that increase the potency of gases. Without those, it's still 28, so still worse than it was in 2007. A key point is that measured over a 20-year time frame, the IPCC says that methane is 86 times more potent than CO2. And why the difference? Well, it's because methane breaks down relatively quickly in the environment. At the end of the 20-year period, most of it has disappeared, it's broken down. So it's no longer potent. The meat industry will tell you that it's part of the carbon cycle, that it's all absorbed back into the vegetation. It is eventually, but whilst it's there, it is warming the planet to enormous levels. So it's very, very relevant to beef and lamb and other products from ruminant animals Ruminant animals are those who produce methane in their digestive system through a process called enteric fermentation. In their digestive system, they break down cellulose in, in grass. We can't do that. 
And a byproduct of that is methane, and they belch it out, and they breathe it out, and they're 24-7 methane machines. The next issue is land clearing. And we'll look particularly at Australia. The map that you see here shows an area in orange, which is the area cleared of native vegetation since Europeans arrived on this continent. Our total land mass is 7.7 .7 million square kilometres. Very large portion of that is arid or semi-arid land. There's about 2.3 million square kilometres that is fertile. Of that land area, we have cleared around a million square kilometres. And around 70% of that, 700,000 square kilometres, is because of livestock industries. Not just meat, but wool as well. Livestock graze on about 58% of this continent's land area. So it's not only the area that's been cleared that's the problem, it's the damage they do to native soils releasing soil carbon as they graze. What I want to do now is use a map of Melbourne to give you some idea of the amount of land that's been cleared in Queensland over one 20-year period for livestock production. If I was to draw a line from where I'm standing now, directly east, through East Melbourne, through Richmond, through Hawthorne, through Canterbury, I almost get to Baldwin Road. That's a 10 kilometre line. If we were to assume that all the land north of that line was not houses and streets and schools, but it was forest and other wooded vegetation, if I was to clear a, an area of land that was equivalent to the area cleared for livestock production in Queensland between 1988 and 2008, by clearing this piece of land, how far north do you think we would go? Any guesses? I'm happy to answer it for you if you prefer me to. Okay. That area of land would extend all the way from Melbourne, 10 kilometres wide, all the way from Melbourne to Cairns. But that's not all. It would come all the way back again and all the way back again, and a third of the way back again. That is 78,000 square kilometres cleared in Queensland in a 20-year period for livestock production, for pasture. Now, you might have heard that livestock broad-scale land clearing was banned in Queensland from the end of 2006. Unfortunately, Newman, in his wisdom and his government, overturned that ban in 2013. The Labor government, the current Labor government, is planning to introduce a ban again, but they have 43 seats in an 89-seat parliament, and they're up against two independents and two members of the Cata Party. So all I can say is good luck to the Labor Party in Queensland. And good luck because of the increased pressure on land clearing for livestock production as a result of the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The World Wildlife Fund has identified Australia as one of the 11 deforestate, global deforestation fronts in the 20 years to 2030 simply because of legislation in Queensland and New South Wales 
because the New South Wales government plans to overturn this year a law protecting native vegetation. Now the third issue is Amazon deforestation. And I'm not talking, it is very relevant to emissions intensity of products, but what I'm talking about here is the fact that we, as a global community, are, in the words of David Spratt, a prominent Melbourne-based climate change author, on the edge of a climate change precipice, we have no buffer, we really have no carbon budget, for any reasonable measure of risk, we have no carbon budget. That is, we should be emitting no more life, no, no more carbon to the atmosphere. So we have a situation where we need to protect key carbon sinks like the Amazon. And the Amazon is a fragile environment which is being encroached on continuously with new roads and new pasture areas and new crops. And it becomes drier, less rainfall because of less less vegetation, drier, more prone to fire, etc., etc. There are feedbacks in the ecosystem and that leads to feedbacks in the overall climate system, potentially leading to climate change tipping points and runaway climate change. Now, this is an area of, uh, cleared for soy production in the Amazon. And a key source, the biggest driver of soy production in the Amazon is livestock feed crops. And we are slaughtering over 60 billion chickens a year to feed 7.4 billion humans, plus another 10 billion land animals, many of whom are eating feed crops. The chickens certainly are. Now, the issue of the efficiency comes in here, because if we were to clear a land of Amazon rainforest to grow soy to feed humans directly, Let's assume we take up this much land area that you see in that circle on the screen. If that soy, instead of coming directly to us, went to chickens, whose meat we then, or flesh we then consume, we would be using this much land area. And when you think about that figure of 60 billion chickens slaughtered every year to feed humans, that translates to an awful lot more land area than would otherwise be required to feed humans. We could reforest massive areas of this globe, including the Amazon, if we moved towards a plant-based diet and stopped losing so much nutrition by feeding it through animals to us. The final issue relates to fishing's impact. There was a paper in the journal Nature Climate Change late last year which spoke about vegetated coastal habitats and the massive carbon stores that they represent and the impact of industrial and non-industrial fishing on those stores. What is happening is that we are killing the top predators in that system. 90% of large predators in the ocean have, have disappeared. And as a result, their prey are proliferating. They're changing their habits because they don't have predators and they're growing in number. And many of their prey are herbivores or bioturbators, which are, which are animals that disturb the ocean sediment, releasing carbon. So there's a, a few points here that this, these carbon stores equate to 25 billion tonnes of carbon, which is 50% of the overall 
ocean carbon sediment. They sequester carbon at 40 times the rate of tropical rainforest. And they're being destroyed because of a lack of ocean predators. And the ocean predators are dying because of industrial fishing. They're caught as bycatch, even if they're not the targeted species. We go out with purse nets and other forms of industrial fishing and catch everything that gets in the way and throw it back, including sharks and sea lions and seals, etc. If only 1% of the area was affected, it would equate to 460 million tonnes of carbon in a year. That's not far behind Australia's emissions and as much as all the cars in Britain, Spain and France. If we lost 2% or 2% was disturbed in a year, it would, be, it would equate to the loss of carbon sequestration, that's the absorption of carbon from the atmosphere, equal to a forest the size of Belgium. So this has nothing to do with cows and sheep and then meat, beef and lamb. This has to do with fish consumption and seafood consumption. So just recapping on the issues I've discussed today. We spoke about greenhouse gases, particularly methane. I didn't touch on nitrous oxide, which is another prominent greenhouse gas from livestock, which is 300 times as potent as CO2 or thereabouts. We spoke about land clearing in Australia, and I didn't even touch on Africa, where there are over 300 million cattle compared to our 29 million. And I should say that the land, the land from between Melbourne and Sydney has been said by the CSIRO to have been mainly forest when Europeans arrived. You could virtually walk from Melbourne to Sydney in a forest. What you see as cleared land on the Hume Highway, you might think is natural land. It's not. Most of it's been cleared for livestock production. We spoke about Amazon destruction to feed chickens and to feed fish and to feed chickens producing eggs and also dairy cows to produce milk and, and yogurt and cheese. And we spoke about fishing's direct impact on climate change. In terms of what I've spoken about today, you can see more information on my own website, which is Terrastendo, and I have a few cards here, which are simply a card showing you the website address and that type of thing, but it's terrastendo.net. And you can see a booklet currently available via the Vegan Australia website, which I've released in conjunction with Vegetarian Victoria and Vegan Australia, which covers those issues I just spoke about, plus a lot more on the issue of animal agriculture. You're tuned to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, and this is Freedom of Species. So that was a Feeling Groovies track called Deep End. Before that, you heard Paul Marnie's presentation about animal agriculture and climate change at the recent Sustainable Living Festival in Melbourne. We'll now return to that recording where Mark Donadu picks up. He talks on the impact of animal agriculture on human health and its contribution to poverty. Now, I'm also going to, uh, like Paul, make an acknowledgement uh, uh, of the, this country. Uh, I begin by acknowledging the land of the Wurundjeri, uh, the people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. 
I acknowledge the pivotal role that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people continue to play within the Australian community. Now, before I start uh, with my presentation, I was going to ask uh, anybody uh, if you've seen the film Cowspiracy. If you can put your hands up if you've seen that. It's about half the audience. Can you leave your hands up if you enjoyed the film and thought it was uh, of, of relevance? We have quite a, quite a few people. Now, the reason why I call this Beyond Cowspiracy is because uh, in a one-and-a-half-hour film, there's a limit to the amount of information that you can convey, especially for the general public who, for the first time, are new to this uh, type of information. For those that haven't seen the, the film, we've actually got copies of it here, which we're selling for $25 later, uh, but I definitely recommend you, you check that out. But the interesting thing about Cowspiracy was that it highlighted the, the main reason why animal industries, even though they're the biggest source of uh, greenhouse emissions in the world, hardly ever get talked about on the websites of some of the, the major environmental groups, such as uh, 350.org or Greenpeace or Sierra Club uh, and uh, Amazon Watch and so forth. And what the film actually showed was that one of the reasons for it was because the the livestock industry, being as powerful as they are, are able to, through their financial donations and lobbying, are able to influence a lot of these uh, environmental, uh, environmental groups to not really make that a focus. And so some of them don't cover it at all, which is uh, quite shocking, especially when you look at uh, the fact that the main driver of environmental damage in the Amazon is animal industries. And uh, there's no doubt that 90% uh, of the clearing is purely for grazing of, uh, or sorry, growing of soybeans that are going to be fed to cattle. It's hardly ever talked about. And uh, people that have spoken about it, like it was mentioned in Cowspiracy, were a lot of the activists. And there's something like 1,100 activists that have been killed trying to speak up about the, the impact of the, the cattle ranches and then destroying that land. So it's a very, very uh, uh, powerful film that's made some very important points. Having said that, there's a lot of other points that uh, weren't made in the film that I think need to be covered. And one of those is about the, uh, the role uh, worldwide of, of animal industries, and in particular, uh, what's actually happening in areas like China and India. Now, it, in, uh, prior to 1980, the uh, total meat intake in China was about one-tenth of what was experienced in the United States. But since then, things have changed dramatically. In fact, in those days, uh, the people in China uh, outlived the, uh, the, the average American by quite a number of years. They had far less rates of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. And, in fact, diabetes was virtually unknown in those days. Since 1980, the amount of meat consumption has increased 13 times. That's 1,300%. It's a staggering uh, increase. And what's uh, even uh, more disturbing about that is Macquarie Bank uh, recently bought out a lot of James Packer's uh, 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 numbers of uh, livestock, and they bought that because they expected that both China and India were going to have massive growth in uh, meat consumption, which is what they're experiencing. Now, today we're, we're in a situation where, where diabetes used to be very rare in China, it used to be one of the lowest rates of diabetes in the world. Now they have more people with di uh, diabetes than anywhere on the planet. And one of the misconceptions that people have is that they think that diabetes is largely due to too much uh, blood sugars in their diet and that having too many carbohydrates is the cause of that. But in actual fact, prior to 1980, they consumed 30% uh, more calories than the average American and they had huge amounts of white rice and vegetables. Now they consume far less white rice and vegetables and consume a lot more animal protein and uh, about 13 to 14% of their population has got diabetes, which is a, a huge increase. Why is that uh, the case? Because animal protein, in particular animal fat, coats your insulin receptors on your cells and actually stops you absorbing 
both insulin and uh, glucose, and that's something that's, that's hardly ever talked about. In fact, the, uh, the sequel to uh, Cowspiracy is actually going to be called uh, What the Health, and it's going to be talking about why a lot of these health uh, facts are not uh, communicated to the public, and they're very much the same economic uh, interests that are, are stopping a lot of the environmental information from being uh, communicated to the public, albeit the industries themselves might be slightly different in, in some cases. So that's very disturbing, that they're consuming a lot more animal products in, in China and also now in India as well. Now, uh, Paul touched a little bit about Africa, but uh, what uh, a lot of people don't realise is that whilst there are programs that Oxfam are initiating where they're giving a cow and a goat to populations in, say, Ethiopia or Sudan, where there's a lot of starving uh, people, the perception is that that's actually doing a lot of good. But the reality is very different to that, and I'll explain why. If you take Africa, it's uh, got uh, roughly four times the land of Australia, and uh, Australia got 28 million cattle, and uh, uh, I think uh, uh, Africa about 280 million, so there's a, a lot more uh, 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 cattle. Now, not only that, the, the, you would think that with all that cattle, they would be feeding a lot of people, but that's not what's happening. If you look in Nigeria, only 3% of their, uh, their, their, their calorie intake is due to the, the cattle or milk produced by, by the cattle. If you look in Ethiopia, it's much the same. And in fact, um, they, in Ethiopia, you have a land that, which is 64% the size of Queensland. Now, Queensland have got 11 million cattle. Ethiopia got 50 million cattle. What's even more in, uh, amazing is that there's only 4.5 million people in Queensland and 82 million uh, human beings in Ethiopia. And yet, all of that cattle is only feeding 3% of the population. That's including the milk they produce as well. So what are the cattle actually doing? Well, they're creating some of the most massive desertification imaginable in that country. It's a very inefficient way of raising, uh, of producing food. In fact, it's been estimated that in, with five hectares, you could feed uh, only two with beef, and yet you could feed 60 uh, with beans for, uh, by comparison. So it's incredibly inefficient. Uh, when you look at water usage, I mean, the CSIRO actually showed that, uh, in looking in Australia, that it takes anywhere between 50,000 and 100,000 litres of water to produce one kilo of beef, compared to about 500 litres for a kilo of potatoes by comparison. And uh, that's uh, in this uh, booklet that uh, you can all pick up for free at the end of this talk called Eating Up the World, which is produced by Vegetarian Victoria. And and when you look at countries like Ethiopia, they grow some very drought-resistant uh, root vegetables like yams and sweet potatoes and, and their, their uh, variations of that, which are the most drought-resistant vegetables in the world. And they can feed families of four almost indefinitely just by growing those. They've also got uh, a vegetable called the NSAID, which is similar to like a, a variation of the banana uh, tree, and it also has very drought-resistant fruits. They've also got like a type of boa tree, and I think they eat uh, some of the roots off those and some of the, uh, uh, the fruits and things that grow from that. So they've certainly got quite a lot of um, uh, ways of, of feeding themselves, but certainly adding a cow and a goat is not helping. And the reason it's not is because the cow is notorious for consuming huge amounts of land and not giving you a lot of uh, output for it, but then the goat will basically eat whatever the cow doesn't eat, the goat will finish off and often you know, rip out the whole little uh, uh, bits of grass roots and all and often eat a lot of the, the new uh, buds of uh, emerging plants and so forth. And it, that basically between the cow and the goat, they're the desertification duo. And in fact, if you uh, want to learn more about it, uh, check out Jeff Russell's uh, great article uh, called Poverty, where it goes into this in, in enormous detail. 
So certainly that, that is not a, a great uh, strategy to focus on animal industries, especially when in Africa they've got a huge history of being plant eaters. You know, there was a study in The Lancet, one of the most prestigious uh, medical journals in the world, uh, from England, and they, uh, they reprinted a study they did in 1959 where they looked at people in Uganda and they had 1 in 10,000 had heart disease. At the same time, 1 in 2 Americans had heart disease. And some of the researchers were all confused by that and they thought it must be a genetic difference. Well, guess what? They took some of the Ugandans from Uganda, took them to the United States, put them on a standard Western diet, and pretty soon, within a few years, those uh, new Americans from Uganda also had 1 in 2 of them having heart disease. And it will virtually prove that it was nothing to do with genetics and everything to do with diet. And so now there's this program to, to try and educate Africans to consume more meat. And there's all of these uh, programs going on trying to introduce cattle, goats and all these things to a population that didn't have them, didn't need them, and were doing far better off without them. And now their disease rates are increasing. In fact, it was interesting, the first rate, uh, first uh, incidence ever of uh, heart disease in Uganda was noticed by a judge in Uganda who had spent a lot of time in the United States and, and got addicted to eating a lot of meat and eggs and, and so forth. And, and now we're starting to see Western diseases in those sort of countries and they're starting to degrade their environment uh, massively as a result of these practices. So it's anything but sustainable and something we should uh, really uh, have a look at. And in fact, even Nathan Pritikin, who had one of the highest levels of cholesterol ever, he said he learned from the Bantu, who had never had a history of heart disease ever, and the Bantu were in South Africa, he adopted their diet and he, and he said that he reduced his cholesterol virtually down to, to very low levels. The medical establishment refused to acknowledge that, and so he said when he finally dies, he wants his body to, uh, uh, to, for them to do an autopsy and then to actually publish what his cholesterol levels were like. And in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1985, they said that he had uh, an artery cleaner than that of a teenager, which uh, just shows that uh, yeah, that sort of diet does have that effect. So, so this, this Western diet that we're imposing on, on people in third world uh, nations not only is an environmental disaster, but is also a health disaster as well. Not to mention the uh, huge amounts of animal cruelty that you're inflicting on these animals uh, in that uh, process as well. Now, the, this environmental damage also uh, extends to, to other areas, and, and, and let's take Australia. There's a lot of people talking about how kangaroos can be more sustainable, and uh, they're saying, well, they, uh, they're not factory farmed, they just hop around naturally, and so that could be an efficient way to uh, produce meat. It's anything but the case. If you have a look at uh, uh, your average cow, it produces about 260 uh, kilograms of, of meat, and however, um, you, you can, uh, it's about 260 kilograms rather, and about 60% of it is, is meat that they can sell. Whereas a kangaroo um, only really gets about 30 kilograms uh, uh, in weight. The big red kangaroos, the seven foot ones, they're only about five to 10% of the, the population of kangaroos. They're mostly the gray uh, 30 kilogram ones. And, and unlike a pig that takes four months to get to 70 kilograms, these kangaroos take uh, a full three years to just get to 30 kilograms. In fact, in one year, I'm going to get to 10 kilograms. And even then, a fully grown 30 kilogram kangaroo only pr produces 1.5 kilograms of usable uh, first grade meat and uh, 1.5 kilograms of secondary uh, cuts. This is according to the kangaroo uh, uh, industry themselves. So it's an incredibly inefficient way to, uh, to go about things. And in fact, it would take 120 kangaroos to equal one cow in terms of meat production. So it's clearly not a, a sustainable uh, uh, practice. And not only that, you would need to, uh, in, the, in the year where there was the most kangaroos ever reported in Australia, there was uh, an area where they had a lot of uh, a time when they had a lot of rain, there was something like 60 million kangaroos available at that time. Usually it's about 30. 
and uh, even if they had those numbers, you would still need 80 times that to equal the amount of meat that you would get from, from cows. So it's, you would need many Australias to be able to, to do it. It's just not practical at all. So kangaroo industry is certainly not, not a viable one. And then when it comes to uh, 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 fishing, a lot of people think a factory farm uh, fish is, is a solution, but I've got to tell you it's not because it takes five kilograms of factory of uh, wild fish fed to factory farm fish to get just one kilogram. And, in, and often when they, uh, they collect those factory farm, uh, uh, when they feed these factory farm fish, the wild fish does, as Paul uh, suggested, include a lot of bycatch. And in fact, if you took a, a, a typical fish meal and you put it on the table, you would, uh, and you would, would then add all of the bycatch, which includes things like sharks and, and whales, dolphins, all these types of fish that are not uh, to be sold, obviously, on the, on the market, you will find it will take up five metres on the table. That's how much uh, bycatch there is. And, and that's where most of the fish actually go. And these days, they're actually turning them into fish meal, which they're even feeding back to cows. And in fact, uh, worldwide, cows are now the biggest ocean predator in the world. And uh, that's the, the crazy thing about this, this fishing industry. Now, people seem to think that uh, you need to have fish because of the high omega-3s. Well, the reality is that the, the omega-3s, uh, when they do studies on inflammation, uh, they do not reduce inflammation, whereas omega-3s from flaxseeds do. And in fact, uh, Michael Greger on nutritionfacts.org uh, has got great videos just showing all the studies on that. On top of that, they're supposed to reduce uh, 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 blood clotting and improve uh, heart uh, blood flow. It doesn't do any of that. It doesn't reduce uh, heart disease uh, one iota. However, when you have things like flax seeds, it certainly does. And, and uh, certainly a plant-based diet does that uh, very well. So it's not even doing the things it claims. Now, in Australia, virtually 99% of the salmon that is sold is factory farm salmon. And, uh, and that doesn't even have very high levels of omega-3s anyway. Uh, I found that it's mostly omega-6, which is pro-inflammatory, uh, pro and, um, and, and often, even when you have the omega-3s, they're often, the fish is often out for a long time that it goes rancid and actually has a negative effect rather than a positive effect uh, on the body. So it's not really any uh, type of a viable solution at all. On top of that, they're having a whole lot of uh, sea lice that are affecting the, uh, the salmon that's affecting other fish outside of those nets as well. And uh, something like 78% of the salmon are actually affected by that, uh, uh, the, that uh, sea lice. And on top of that, uh, because the fish are not swimming, they normally swim about 100 kilometres a day in the wild, say like in the North Atlantic. And here, because they're in a confined environment, they're not uh, doing any exercise. Uh, and uh, the uh, texture of the fish is, is a white uh, colour. Uh, rather than being a, a salmon pal. So now they're adding a, a red dye in the water, which is called canthazanthin, uh, to get that, uh, that pink salmon color, which incidentally was banned by the European Union, uh, but legal in Australia. And, uh, and yet they're still adding that uh, to the fish. So you know, it's probably no one more unhealthy uh, food that you could eat than, uh, uh, than factory farm fish. And especially when you look at the heavy metal levels, they're literally hundreds of times higher than what you would find uh, in, in plants and uh, many uh, tens of uh, times higher than even you find in, in beef and eggs and chicken. And so certainly if you want to avoid heavy metals, even more, there are more pesticides in, in um, uh, fish and even more pesticides in beef than you'll find in most uh, heavily sprayed vegetables because of the bioaccumulation that these animals uh, incur when they're consuming them on a, on a great rate. So there's certainly a lot more information uh, to talk about than what was in the Cowspiracy film. And uh, 
And certainly I, uh, I recommend, if you haven't seen the film, to uh, pick up a, a copy uh, of that afterwards. And we also have some Eating Up the World booklets that you can pick up as well that are totally free that we uh, produce. And, uh, and we've also got a copy of the China Study, which talks about how the diet in China um, has uh, basically shown that when people are on plant-based diets, they tend to have far less heart disease, cancer, diabetes, osteoporosis, Alzheimer's, uh, virtually multiple uh, sclerosis, most of the Western diseases that tend to afflict us, you know, uh, quite a lot. And, uh, and it actually showed that the, the, some areas that, for example, had no uh, animal foods at all, had no diabetes, and those that even had a small amount actually uh, then started to, uh, to develop that, uh, that condition. So th there's a lot of information there to, uh, to follow up on. But um, I think I might uh, just wrap it up uh, now, and uh, both Paul and I will then take some questions uh, from the audience. Thank you. All right, uh, can we, we maybe have the first question from somebody? Hello. Um, thank you so much. It was really very informative. I'm wondering if you've heard of Alan Savory and his work called Holistic Management and what is your opinion of his work? So even if the cows and other hoofed animals were not eaten, and maybe yep. their milk products weren't used. Yeah, if you look at my website, I've got three articles on Alan Savory. And Alan Savory is promoting this holistic management process. It might have merit on a small scale, but it's never going to be sufficient to feed the masses. It needs, it needs what, what I've said in my article, and, and this is based partly on some information from Gerard Wedderburn Bishop, who was a principal scientist with the Queensland Government for many, many years, in an interview on the Freedom of Species program with 3CR and, and elsewhere. But he talks about the need for uh, fencing because you need to con constantly move the cattle and things like that. And it's just not a viable process to feed the masses because just in Australia, most of the cattle are in the vast northern regions and they are degrading the soil unbelievably. And uh, Savory will say that his method will reverse that desertification process, but it, it's just not, he, he doesn't back it up with scientific studies. There are some great articles out there, uh, which I've referred to in my articles, where it has been objectively assessed and found wanting, greatly wanting. And he has a massive audience. I said in my article that the MC at a presentation he gave on TED said that everyone here would love to hug you. Well, they would because they probably want to keep eating meat. They need to look objectively at what he's saying. It doesn't, really doesn't stack up. Uh, Tom Nicholas, Healthy Soils Australia. Great information. Lots of figures. Lots of um, things that you don't know whether it's true or not. Now, to be quite honest, so your take on, on um, Alan Savory is just wrong. You're pure D wrong. And you don't know what you're doing. Have you got a question? The question it's is question time. When are you blokes gonna have a good feed of meat so your brain starts operating properly? That's the bloody question. I I've, I've never yeah, heard right, so okay. a lot of garbage right. in the life. Well can you can you back it with any science? It's it's all well and good coming on and saying science saying the science. Anyone anyone can say it's all well, rubbish, okay. I'll but ask the up with evidence. This thing here, the China study, yeah. Did they recognise how the food was grown? 
Yeah, they did, and most of it was no, actually no, no, no. organically grown. Most of the farmers, if you actually read the exactly, it was, what well, was the Western diet grown? Yeah, yeah, but, no, not organic. Oh, so your old study's wrong. Okay, I'll take my document, document so I can answer the question. All right. Now, well, what they actually found in China, most of the, the cattle farmers were growing the, the cattle you know, grass-fed like they were for thousands of years. And it was in those populations that actually had higher rates of heart disease, higher rates of cancer, higher rates of diabetes, before they started adopting the Western farming practices. So even, and they found that animal protein in particular is a driver for, for cancer, for heart disease, and, uh, and for diabetes. And that, and that is without considering the harmful uh, practices that we're adopting today. Next question. Yeah, I've got a question about, um, you talk about Chinese diet. I've been involved with macrobiotics when I was young, and the diet, Michelle Cushy, who recommended this diet, um, had recommended that everyone eat 70% rice in their diet. But what they found over the years was that um, Westerners had evolved differently and actually needed more meat and far less rice, they just couldn't tolerate 70%, hang on, 70% of rice in their diet. And when you look at that China study, you made no mention of sugar and any takeaway food, thrown in, you know, crap conditions, um, with not just the meat, but all the vegetables, how they grow their food. And, um, yeah, so it's no wonder the sugar, the coke, what about coke, you haven't mentioned coke or sugar, the Chinese have bought virtually every sugar refinery in Queensland, so they're obviously looking to export more sugar to China as well. And that could have played a big part in their, their deterioration in their health. Yeah, and right. it's not just that, it's also that, yeah, hang on, and this is part of the question. Well, he spoke for a long time, so did you, so I'd like to ask a question. And there's also the um, Western living conditions, which are very different from traditional ones. So if you've got people from Africa moving to America and eating the highly sugared food over there as well, it's not just meat, not just meat, but it's also the stress of the conditions. So could you please... Yeah, I'll address it very quickly. Uh, basically what they found in, uh, in China, they were actually consuming less sugar in total when you consider the carbohydrates they had prior, uh, prior to 1980. Prior to 1980, they consumed 30% more calories than the average American. Amazing as that is, because they're, 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 they're the most, well, mostly white rice and vegetables. That was most of their calories. It's in the, in the China study. Since, since 1980, they consumed 13 times more meat, right, but less uh, carbohydrates, more animal protein. That's basically been, been, been the, the difference. The sugar is only a small percent of, of what they've improved. Uh, well, the total sugar intake, including carbo carbohydrates from white rice, which is the, one of the ones that increases your, your GI as, almost as fast as, as sugar, was actually um, lower after they had more rates of uh, diabetes and, and, uh, uh, and heart disease and so forth. So, and, and what they found with other people on standard Western diets, they've done lots of studies on this, where they've, they've just eliminated the sugars and just kept the animal protein the same, and they found that diabetes hasn't improved, or heart disease, or cancers. That, that seems to be a bigger driver. Sure, sugar uh, is uh, somewhat detrimental, but no, no. what they found with diabetes is that per gram, there's a greater insulin response with a, a, a gram of beef versus a gram of sugar, even white refined sugar. All right, now we probably want to have more questions. Uh, yes, Nick. A question about if the fish you were talking about. Um, is it true that uh, in Fukushima they've still been dumping 
thousands and thousands of tonnes of radioactive uh, water into the oceans and pretty much every fish is uh, a radioactive uh, uh, beyond normal or acceptable levels. Uh, yeah, look, that's absolutely true. What I was actually talking about was just, even without radiation, yeah, the toxic amount of heavy metals and PCBs, dioxins and biophenols and so forth, that's bad enough. But when it comes to radiation, there have been lots of studies that actually show that there are far greater concentrations in fish compared to seaweed and, uh, and certainly compared to uh, uh, plant foods. So um, if you want to avoid radiation, then the first thing you want to do is avoid uh, fish. Definitely, because radiation is one of those things that also get a bioaccumulates in the same way as heavy metals do. So yeah, that that is a uh, that's probably the final death knell for people that think that fish are healthy. I mean, if all of the other evidence wasn't overwhelming enough, that that, that should really uh, be the end of it. Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, some more people. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say a big thank you for your speech and everything. I mean, it's obviously a highly controversial topic, so you know, congratulations and thank you for everything you said. Um, I just wanted to ask if you had any like further reading or like anyone in particular that really inspired you amongst like all of the information that you spread. Like, is there any like further stuff that you have for people to go and look at? Yeah, I tend to grab information from lots and lots of places. So I, I write a bit about climate change in general, as well as the impact of animal agriculture. And James Hansen, who's the preeminent probably climate scientist, I, I follow very closely. And people like in Australia, Jeff Russell is a person who has written extensively in, on a number of websites. I don't know if you were here at the end of my presentation. I've, We've got a booklet through Vegetarian Victoria in Australia called The Low Meat Diet. Sorry, The Low Emissions Diet, Eating for a Safe Climate. So that's available via Vegan Australia with lots of references in there. So that's probably a good starting point for the, the material that I'm putting out, as well as my website, Terra Stendo, which, contrary to what the previous question has said, uh, where's the evidence? Everything I've produced is extensively referenced. So you can go and... and go through that extensively, which they might like to do one day. I don't expect them to, though. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that. And also, uh, we've got a publication called Leading Up the World, which is free, but it's great reading as well. Uh, the China Study is one book that uh, is good from a health point of view. I, I definitely uh, recommend that one. And uh, these, there's also another one called How Not to Die by Michael Greger, which is an interesting one as well. And Cowspiracy is a great starter for learning about the environment. So I think that there's some good resources and some of these are available afterwards as well if anyone's uh, interested. Firstly, well done on how you responded to the other questions. Um, in society, we're doing a lot of um, fast food and needing things right now. Um, how do we address that as a society? How do we really make veg more simply in a fast food and wanting it now facility. Well, one of the things uh, that we've got these days is uh, YouTube, and there's so many people that are posting uh, really quick recipes, um, the great resources on how you can shop really cheaply, uh, where you can go locally, how you can grow your own vegetables. All of these things are really great information that wasn't so accessible years ago. So it's never been easier to be sustainable in that respect as it is now. And so if anyone wants to know these things, there's an infinite number of resources almost uh, you know, on YouTube, on, on the internet, uh, all these uh, even Facebook pages where people are posting all different ways of being creative with, with a vegan diet. And some of the recipes can be done under five minutes. There's a zucchini pasta recipe that takes about four and a half minutes. And it's as, it's as healthy as you can get. So there's certainly a lot of options uh, that way. I'll just mention that booklet that I just mentioned, which is the Low Emissions Guide. We've got six sample recipes in there.
from the kind cook at Mel Baker's website. And in that, we show the emissions from the recipe as it is, and also what the emissions would be if you added beef and chicken, etc. So that's just another interesting one. But there are only six, but it just gives you a sample. But there are a huge number of resources about um, so in, in regards to um, bioaccumulation of the heavy metals around uh, fish as you sort of go up, up the food chain with like salmon and tuna yeah, yeah. accumulating the most, what about like lower down the food chain like sardines for example? Yeah, look at this true, that lower down the food chain uh, you have less uh, bioaccumulation, that's certainly true. What is interesting though is with the, the factory farm fish, because they're, they're in a factory farmed environment, they're actually eating above the food chain. For example, a uh, salmon would never eat a shark or a dolphin, but they're doing that now because it's part of the, the food that they're actually fed. So it's actually messing up the, the, the whole um, bioaccumulation that, that you're finding. And what they're even finding, what's interesting about that is that a, a lot of people like Joseph McCullough, who works for, it's actually on the Western Price Foundation, which is funded by cattle farmers, even he had to say there's no such thing as safe fish anymore. And then he was trying to encourage people to have krill oil. And even that now, on the latest studies, uh, have shown that that's incredibly contaminated with heavy metals, even something that, that tiny. So the, to me, there's no real safe options just from a heavy metal contamination point of view, let alone the fact that the omega-3s don't seem to be working anywhere near as the, the plant omega-3s, unlike what the, a lot of the, the information you know, that they've been promoting actually says. In the booklet also, uh, we've got something, there's a section on the, the food web pointing out that humans are at level 2.21 on the food web. Uh, Predator species, the top of the food web, are at 5.5. We're much closer to cows and and plant-based animals or herbivores than many people would try to make you believe. Humans are way below the top of the, the food web or food chain. It's actually a web rather than a chain. It's a very complex series of interactions, but there are lots and lots of species above us in that food web as a, at the current level. Now, if we move to a plant-based diet, well, we'd be equal with, with cows and we'd survive perfectly well. And if anybody wants to know where you get your protein, well, elephants don't eat other animals, cows don't eat other animals, and they look to be doing pretty well. And I wouldn't want to try to contend with an elephant or a cow. So that's, that's very much your part of the answer to that anyway. This is Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, and you've been hearing from Paul Marnie and Mark Donadu who recently gave talks at the Sustainable Living Festival in Melbourne on the subject of animal agriculture, climate change and human health. It's time to wrap the show up for this week, but before I go, let me tell you about an annual charity bike ride that's on again next weekend on Sunday, March the 20th. It's to raise funds for the shelters of Animal Aid and it's got a 95-kilometre route which goes through some magnificent East Gippsland countryside from Sale to Bairnsdale. Details and tickets are at their Facebook page, 2016 Ride for the Animals. And it's also on our Freedom of Species Facebook page. Also, Victoria's duck shooting season commences next Saturday, March the 19th. If you're outraged by the recreational slaughter of Australian wildlife, please let your local MP know. You could also drop Premier Daniel Andrews and MP Yala Pulford a line on this matter. That's it for this week. Many thanks to Paul Marnie, Mark Donadu, Feeling Groovies and the Sustainable Living Festival folk. You can contact us by email, info at freedomofspecies.org and you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter.
I'm leaving you with another Feeling Groovies tune. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.